just briefly, but take the Bible that's available there in the chair and um, a brief paragraph in Hebrews 11 on page 1381 is a perfect springboard from what Justin just prayed. And, and as we think about what this means, exalting God above all of the circumstances of life, we have these living witnesses that are cataloged in a, in a powerful, in a kind of an ascending order in the Bible, showing that throughout many centuries, God would make this real to an individual's heart and he or she would respond to God. And that became the basis of this beautiful pattern of faith that we're celebrating in the book of Acts. But these first six verses of Hebrews 11, though very familiar, I want to bring a fresh focus as we pray today that we might embrace the reality of a living faith, a faith in action in every heart. Stand if you, if you can or be seated, whatever, whatever is best for you, and let us read together aloud Hebrews 11, 1 through 6. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it, the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he being dead still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And very simply, with one heart, we say together today, yes, Lord, we believe. And we thank you, Lord, not only for the examples, but for the living witness by the power of the Holy Spirit that quickens the body of Christ, every redeemed child of God, and the joyous invitation you give us to receive Jesus Christ as Lord, Savior, Redeemer, Shepherd, and King. We exalt you, Lord, in this place. Lord, may our voices join the chorus of bold witnesses proclaiming, Jesus is Lord. Could you say that aloud with me together? Jesus is Lord. God bless you. As we put these Bibles back in their place, we want to welcome each of you to this time of worship and celebration and fellowship. There's a missing, there's more than one, there's a lot of missing things that I would love that we were all together in one place, of course. But I have to say also, we're missing Anthony and Beth today, who were going to be here as our guests uh, to bring special music. But uh, they got that old COVID bug, and we're so sorry about that. So keep Anthony and, and Bethany in prayer uh, for healing, for, for that quick healing, rapid recovery. And we also want to take a moment in prayer for a special request we had uh, sharing from uh, a young man by the name of Brandon Baker, a uh, young man who's experienced severe, severe burns over 
45% of his body in, a, in an accident. And the Baker family, we're joining with Mount Airy Bible Church and others that are lifting up that Baker family. Would you join together? Maybe just take a moment. If, you, if you're inclined, maybe join the hands of somebody close to you. Or if you're not, just, uh, let's just take a moment for prayer for this urgent need. Give you thanks, Lord God, together today that we can share in many ways, Lord, and in so many ways that you use this truth of being members of one of another in the body of Christ to bear one another's burdens and to realize, Lord, that the mighty and energizing power of your Holy Spirit flows through the prayers of the body of Christ. We, we, we remember that moment in Acts 12 where, where the church is described as being an urgent and fervent prayer uh, for Peter being imprisoned, and, and yet they weren't even ready for the answer. When, when Rhoda came knocking on the door, there was surprise that the answer had come. Lord, may we not be that way, but may we into prayer boldly, expectantly, looking to you, Lord, for the sovereign and mighty, majestic things that only you can do. And so when we bring this crisis to you, Lord, for the Baker family, for their loved ones, for this young father, Lord, I pray your blessing in rapid healing and recovery for Brandon. We pray, Lord, for uh, burn specialist and, and nurses and the team um, in, that in that facility, Lord, at, and just pray that by your Holy Spirit that you would use in every means your grace and healing virtue to bring Brandon full, and he full healing and recovery, bring strength and comfort and blessing, Lord, today to the family, loved ones, and friends that are standing alongside for Brandon's complete recovery. Lord, we give you thanks today as we share and worship together that you are giving us the gifts we can't see with our eyes, but we can receive with our hearts in the, in the brothers and sisters in Christ, both near us and our friends in other congregations with whom we link up and share. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's take a moment, reach out and greet, greet one another and uh, say hello. We're so glad you're here. And explorers and pathfinders now can go to their, their time together. You know, I, I can't help saying this because it, it touches my heart. I love, I love to be able to see these babies back in church. So we welcome little Isaac and little Rody today. So both of these little ones, but what a blessing having little Isaac Eberly here. Isn't it a blessing? It's just a, such a joy when you're in that expectancy phase and we're all praying for mom and baby. And then, and now here we are just, just loving this, uh, this wonderful gift that God brings into our lives. Lord, it's, it's, it's so good. Um, give thanks to God for, I, I, I find myself almost speechless sometimes as a, as a grandfather and a, and a new grandfather again with ours, with our uh, little nine, nine week old little Simon, and it's just, um, it, it's, it defies any human words how beautiful this is and the, these gifts of these little ones. I invite you to open your Bible today to the sixth chapter of the book of Acts. Today we, we pick up in part four of a series we're talking about the dynamic way that the Holy Spirit both prepares and use, uses ordinary people to do the things that not only were extraordinary in their day, but in our immediate time. That's the, the, the goal of this message in applying to our hearts and lives the realization that in our immediate time, in our contemporary moment, not just our generation generally, but this time that you're in, that being a living witness of our victorious Savior our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ means that 
There are resources by God's grace that each of us can experience that give us this clear picture and understanding of what it means to be a wise witness. Today, as we look at Stephen, the fourth in a series that the common denominator is this move of the Holy Spirit in the life of a person that in some cases either we would not have expected, certainly, but also that oftentimes these are individuals whose stories are, are overlooked. Now we come to the fourth one today, which is made more prominent in the book of Acts. In fact, as you'll see uh, today, the overall text of this message is actually more, more than two chapters. It's really Acts 6-1 all the way to the fourth verse of chapter 8. Now, obviously, we're not going to read all that, but, I wanna, but my, my prayer has been to capture this in line with this understanding, as we've seen in these first three characters, that God does extraordinary things by bringing out of the ordinary, out of what we would think of as just ordinary life. And the focus is, too often, we can get caught up in, in thinking less or, ex, or being unmotivated spiritually because of the ordinariness, what looks like around us, the mundaneness, if that's a word, uh, around us. Uh, the fact that we are day by day by day in, in our lives, we're, we're, we're wrestling with things that seem so mundane and ordinary that we are easily in danger of losing this dynamic understanding of why the Holy Spirit chooses common, ordinary vessels. The illustration of 2 Corinthians 4.6, which just as a, a, a reference here, 2 Corinthians 4.6 says that God puts the treasure of the Holy Spirit's glorious work in old clay jars, earthen vessels. The King James Bible translates it, earthen vessels. Modern translations generally say jars of clay. And, and clearly, that's what we are, formed out of the dust of the earth. And we we see that side of creation sometimes and miss the fact that the entire reason God formed man from the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being, that miraculous sovereign work of God in Genesis chapter 2 is that his word tells us he wanted human beings to be unique and distinctive in all of creation, made a little lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor, Psalm 8 tells us, because God is displaying something in the creation of humanity. Now, because of the curse and the fall and the downward trajectory of sin, sin is a wrecking ball. It destroys not only lives, but it destroys our understanding of this unique and distinctive thing that God designed us for. When we come to the book of Acts, we see God's display of the Holy Spirit now, after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, bringing this to our immediate attention, and he does it, surprise, surprise, through common, ordinary people. Now, the first three we highlighted have that in common, common and ordinary, and yet their stories are given to us, whether in brief or in full, to show us what we'll see today about Stephen, which is 
that they're characterized by a faith which is invincible. Think about those first three for a moment as we think about what it means to be these wise witnesses. We saw Mary was our first because Mary stands apart in a unique way in the book of Acts in that we saw in the three verses of Acts 1 in which we see Mary, really one mention in a little paragraph of three verses, Mary is the last time in the entire Bible that Mary, the mother of Jesus, is mentioned. And, and the one takeaway that I hope we would carry from that event with Mary is the born-again experience. One thing demonstrated by Mary being in that prayer meeting in those days leading up to the day of Pentecost is that Mary needed the very message that each of us must hear at some point in our life, you must be born again. Even Mary, the mother of Jesus, had to accept the Lord Jesus for salvation. And we see by her involvement in the early church, clearly the New Testament by design does not elevate Mary to some exalted status after Pentecost. No, what we know is Mary becomes born again. She's filled with the Holy Spirit. She becomes part, as remarkable as her honor was of being the mother of the Lord, she becomes a part of this wonderful company of the redeemed. What a beautiful way for God to illustrate that he's no respecter of persons, that the call to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, what we'll celebrate on our baptism Sunday two weeks from today with those that are receiving baptism is came to Christ. I came to receive my living Savior. I came to give my heart to Him. I'm being baptized today to celebrate openly what God has already done in my heart, in my life. And of all people we might imagine who's a living example of that, it's no one less significant than Mary, the mother of Jesus. And then we saw a, our second week was about Matthias, who's a disciple mentioned only one time in the Bible, but he stands with the distinction of being the one man that God sovereignly guided the apostles to choose to fill the gap of the fall after the betrayal, the treachery of Judas Iscariot. And so Matthias is put into that number 12 slot, as we saw. And the takeaway from his story is what I call believing and belonging, that even there we see the picture of Romans 12, 4, fleshed out that we're members one of another. It was important to God to set that pattern. Last week as we looked at Barnabas, the, the living example of spontaneous generosity by the leading of the Holy Spirit, we saw that apart from that working of the Holy Spirit in the lives of individuals, we would misunderstand the ways of God. Barnabas is an example of so many things, encouragement, consolation, but we focus on that spontaneous response to the work of the Holy Spirit. But now as we think about Stephen, I wanna ask you to think about Stephen's life in light of being a living witness, a wise witness, and the word witness becomes very key in this because just by reference, and feel free to turn to it in your own Bible if you'd like, this, this entire section finishes with the result of Stephen's life pointing us back to the defining theme verse of the entire book of Acts. And it, and it works like this very quickly. In Acts chapter 8, verse 4, there is a work of God's grace causing people to respond wisely to very harsh, difficult circumstances. That is, 
Stephen is the first martyr of the early church. He literally dies under a pile of jagged rocks, being murdered out of the rage and the response of those who heard the good, net, the good news of God's grace and glory coming out of that old temple into the open, into the streets, into the lives of society, so that every person who hears about Jesus Christ can have a living relationship with Almighty God. And the part of that story that brings a reaction culminates in the death of Stephen. And if in your Bible you would look at Acts 8-4, you'll see that in Acts chapter 8, verse 4, that Stephen... Stephen's death animates an incredible movement of witnessing. Acts 8, 4 says, So they went everywhere proclaiming the word of God. And the reason they went everywhere, and it is noted that they went everywhere here, is that this was the result the preaching of the word as they were scattered was the result of a terrible tragedy that any of us would recognize as heartbreaking when a man so beloved, so mightily used of God, is struck down in the prime of life. And if you go back to verse 1 of Acts 8, you see that this death of Stephen also is a signal, I think of it as a hinge in the book of Acts, in that it is the momentous event, the first martyrdom, is the momentous event that turns the focus toward, in the spotlight of the masterful manuscript of the beloved physician Luke, as he describes all of these momentous events, we see that Saul, who later becomes Paul the Apostle, in Acts 1.8, Saul's first appearance on the page of Scripture is approving of the execution of Stephen. What an astounding opening curtain for Saul of Tarsus. Read Acts 8.1 and notice it says, And Saul approved of his, that is Stephen's, execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered. And then zip down to verse 4 again, and notice they were scattered, and they went about preaching the word. So as the grief-stricken people mourned the death of Stephen, in verse 3, Saul began, continued his campaign to drag off men and women who profess Jesus and commit them to prison. I've told a couple of people that are going to be baptized two weeks from today that we forget in our American culture that being baptized in water is actually a radical act. In some parts of the world, to be baptized in water, confessing the Lord Jesus and being baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit would be a death sentence, even now in certain parts of the world. And that should highlight for us, just as this text does, what a remarkable thing it is that God takes ordinary people in every generation and by the power of the Holy Spirit, he puts within us the capacity to stand 
And having done all to stand and to bear witness of the reality of our living, risen Savior, Jesus. What's remarkable is that across the span of centuries, that calling remains for us. And why? Well, I think a key word is in the very theme verse of Acts, in Acts 1.8. We know the verse so well. You shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. The Greek word for witness literally means martyr. It is the, it, the transliteration is the word martyr martyr. And we might say, and, and say legitimately, that in a sense, every witness, not, not just those who suffer what uh, occurred with Stephen, as you page back now to Acts 6, but also to realize that in a profound way, you and I can actually say to Acts 1.8, Lord, yes, may your power in my life make me a living witness. And in the saying of that, we can acknowledge that we too are qualified by the grace of God alone, not by any merit in ourselves, but by what Christ has done for us. We are qualified to be one of those ordinary clay vessels, those clay jars in which God promised to pour his glorious gift of the Holy Spirit. And when you look around, at an ordinary Monday, or a mundane Wednesday, or a boring Thursday, or something in your life. You might say, no, you don't know me, Pastor Joe. It's exciting, but it's exciting because of exhaustion. I'm, it's not boring. It's actually, it's actually too much going on. Okay, maybe you're on the other end of that spectrum. But either way, we're, we're in danger of getting caught up in the humanness of what we're dealing with and forget that there is also a wonderful privilege and honor that we share with these people. Now, if you open your Bible to Acts chapter 6, you'll see that not only are we called to be witnesses, living witnesses, but the emphasis here today will be on the wise witnesses because what we see in such a remarkable way in the life of Stephen is a great example of he was encouraging churches just like us to deal with the challenges that we face, even in, uh, even in church life, in the, the, the situations that we all face, that we want to always be praying for um, men and women to come to Jesus Christ, for boys and girls to grow in the grace of God, for our church to express, in, in whatever way God has gifted and called us, for our church to express the very best of love for Christ, honor for the Lord, openness and welcoming of those who have not yet heard the good news of the Lord Jesus, and in our connection one with another, to honor our Lord and Savior by loving one another with deep sincerity and commitment. And we see this in this sixth chapter of Acts in an interesting way. We could say, as I mentioned, that the 6th and 7th chapter of Acts is kind of a hinge that turns the focus from the church in Jerusalem primarily and the work that was being done there to the beginnings of the story of Saul and Tarsus. At that hinge point, it might be surprising to many to realize that at that hinge point, the, the actual beginning of Stephen's story revolves around a problem in the early church. Uh, what would look like a very practical problem, and in fact, a very contemporary problem, that is unintentional hurts. Getting hurt 
is a very common, ordinary thing, is it not? And in the ordinary world of our hurts, the Holy Spirit shows us in this story that there is not only a way to move beyond unintentional hurts, and I should add intentional hurts to that, but there's not only a way to move beyond that, there is, there is a calling from God inside of these problems that we face. <laughs> we don't see it many. I know we don't perceive it. That's why focus here is on the ordinary. But look at Acts 6, verse 1. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Jewish believers. A complaint arose against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. May I ask you, I'm reading from the New International Version, by the way, may I just ask you to reflect on how common is it for complaints to arise in any group, be it a church, an organization, a business, a community, even a family, how common and ordinary is it for complaints to arise that come feeling somebody got slighted? Somebody wasn't treated with even-handed uh, equanimity. And, and whether it's m me, I got hurt, or it's my loved one, or it's my close friend, or what, but it doesn't, you know, in a way it doesn't even matter. What happens is hurt begins to circulate and percolate. And that's kind of what happened right here. It's, a, it's remarkable that fifth chapter of the book of Acts records this incredible response and rapid growth among those who were hearing about what the resurrection of Jesus meant. And, and you could look at Acts chapter 4 and 5, even though there was also some persecution developing there, but the results were so exciting that you could look at it and somewhat, somewhat idealize it through rose-colored glasses. Acts 6 verse 1 gives us a great way to think about any problem in the church, any problem in Christians' lives, any problem. Because the common element is not what they were arguing about. The common element is that we are ordinary J. Clark jars of clay. Clay jars. We, a little dyslexia going there. We are ordinary jars of clay. And, and when you stop and think about it, we should never be surprised that human beings are subject to getting hurt in ways that cause potential problems. But here's where the beauty of the story shines through in that this passage gives us a very wise solution that came of the Holy Spirit. Read with me in your own Bible. In Acts 6, verse 2, so the twelve gathered all the disciples together. Notice, you notice in most Bibles, we capitalize the twelve, their capital, a reflection of what we talked about with Matthias. There was a purpose, though it faded from the scene of history after chapter, uh, after chapter 9 of this book, there was no more mention of the twelve. The mention was more about all the apostles. And so it was a, in, at a point in time, the 12, though, were the, the organizational cornerstone 
It's almost like if you go to a building and you look at the cornerstone and the foundation, and then as the structure begins to rise, then you no longer put all your focus on the cornerstone. But Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 and 20 says that we, as a living tabernacle of worshipers, are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. Now, if, we, if there's a structural problem in a building, often you need to excavate and go down to the, even the subsurface and find out what the problem is. So expertise is required to do that. And here we have the God-given expertise of the pen of the writer Luke, the beloved physician, showing us that at the very foundation of the, of the growing church, there is built in a wise way to deal with the hurts of the human heart. Verse 2 says, they gathered around the disciples. They gathered the disciples. The twelve gathered all the believers. Reading slowly here now, Acts 6-2. And that what did they say to all these believers? They said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Now, here's an interesting thing. God is saying, it is vital that we meet all of these needs. But it is also vital that we understand priorities. That we get a good, clear picture of the priorities that should guide the governing of the local church. And as a focal point of that priority, the 12 here are accenting what we see in both verse 2 and in verse 4, their highest priority. In fact, it's repeated, I think, really for emphasis to make it clear that the 12, and then later their counterparts, all the apostles, they were called to launch ordinary people, men and women, boys and girls, into serving God and being actively proactive in meeting needs. And when the complaint arose between those of one cultural background who were also Jews, primarily people that had migrated back to the Jerusalem area from other parts of the Roman Empire, and the uh, more culturally Hebrew Hebrew worshipers there, what we see is an early reflection of what America has been ripped apart by in recent years. Uh, complaints about differences between ethnic groups. And the sad thing is that in the midst of America's crisis today, too few are pointing the way back to the simple fact that coming under the lordship of Jesus Christ brings a wealth of resources to deal with the real and imagined hurts of the human heart. We all know that human beings being subject to lying and deceiving, that it's possible to exaggerate hurt. How many have ever heard a hurt that was a real hurt, but it really got exaggerated and blown way out of proportion? And so that happens, doesn't it, all the time? Well, this, this is a great model here, and the apostles are saying, our priority, number one, look at verse 4, we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. Look back at verse 2 
the end of verse 2, it would not be right for us. The Greek expression there actually accents a very significant focus on thinking through your problem. It said, it would not be reasonable for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God. In Romans 10, Paul quotes an Old Testament prophet, Isaiah, by saying, Whom shall we send and who will go for us? And how shall they hear unless one is sent to proclaim? And Paul wraps up that quote in Romans 10 by saying, As it is written, how timely is the arrival of those who proclaim the good news. This is God's answer to the problem. That is, we want the Word of God to be priority. So when they said, how are we going to deal with this problem? The apostles said, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. In other words, we could take it to the present tense and say, in every church and in every congregational expression of the body of Christ, there are tasks that need to be done that must be prioritized. And the goal of this entire section is to show that Stephen becomes a living example of someone who was called into action to solve a practical problem. Again, back to the ordinary, back to the mundane. And yet God chooses to use Stephen as a living vessel of the coming kingdom. In the New International Version, they translate that, um, that verse in verse 3, whom we will appoint to this duty or this task, the New American Standard, excuse me, we will put them in charge of this task. Now, what we have here in the text is that Stephen is one of the seven. And go down, if you will, to that fifth verse, though there's a long list of names there, Please the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. So we have a list of seven, and Stephen is the leader among them, and it's clear that what they are doing is responding to the command of Jesus. Jesus had said this to the disciples, and I think this rang in their ears. Read it aloud with me. I give you a new commandment, love one another as I have loved you. And they applied that in the early church in this way, that when disunity, broken, brokenness enters the congregational experience, everyone has a mutual responsibility to get involved in nurturing the bond of peace. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now, what's happening in Acts chapter 6 is that the 12 respond rapidly to this problem. They don't close their eyes to it. They don't sweep it under the rug. They respond actively, and they look for the solution. And in looking for that solution together, what happens with each of these is the opening of a new era for the 12. Now, I'd like to note it this way. 
we hear the verse often, equipping the saints to do the work of the ministry. This paragraph in Acts shows us not only how vital that was, but that at the very foundational level of the early church, the twelve, in the next to last time that phrase occurs in the Bible, the twelve are seen as equipping the saints to do works of ministry. They do it in a way that is relevant to all of our lives. They do it in a way that you and I, you might have an opportunity this coming week to do this very thing that is number two, say number two aloud with me, handling conflict wisely. This, can you believe it? This is what distinguishes the beginning of the story of the first martyr of the early church, the, the magnificent story of Stephen. It starts with a challenge that could have frayed the unity of that early growing, exciting movement of God in Jerusalem. Instead of fracturing, what happens is by the time that Stephen is under a pile of rocks dying for his testimony for Jesus, and the persecution ramps up even higher as Saul goes about to carry men and women into court in Jerusalem to try them for their testimony of Jesus. In the midst of all of that, God gives us a beautiful picture of an ordinary man full of the Holy Spirit and faith who then becomes part of a pattern of facing persecution faithfully. Think of it like this. We started today with that fourth verse of the eighth chapter. They went everywhere. Think of it. Scattered under pressure of persecution made it impossible to survive as they had been thriving. What is the result of born-again, redeemed, spirit-filled children of God when they're under pressure, just like when you put a tea bag in very hot water in a teacup, the hot water brings out whatever's in the tea bag. And when we are in hot water, what comes out of our lives, our hearts, our attitudes, what comes out is whatever the real content is. And what came out of the hot water, the scalding hot water of persecution in Jerusalem? Well, Acts 8, 4 tells us they went everywhere being scattered under persecution, proclaiming the word. That is... Not only did Stephen face persecution faithfully, but Stephen's example became a way for believers to see when you're under pressure, when you're under fire, when the heat is on, when the pressure intensifies. Hallelujah. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is alive. And just as Stephen testified before that, that uh, historic council called the Sanhedrin and faithfully proclaimed what it means to believe in the one whose, live, whose body raised from the dead is now has now given us new life and is giving us a, a new temple, a new place to worship, a place to access God. That story then fuels a great movement. Look at that eighth chapter of Acts once again before we close today because I want you to see that this also touches on one of the great truths 
of the Christian life for all of us, and that is the Lord is with you in your times of distress. I've got to repeat that again. If you look with me at Acts chapter 8, verse 2, godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. Now think about this. There's intense mourning. There's a crisis of loss. Many of us know exactly what that feels like. And it is in those crisis moments that the immediate companionship of the Holy Spirit is not only with you, but he's empowering you to be different. And this is highlighted for us if you scroll back in your Bible to the prior chapter, to the end of that martyrdom scene. Notice, if you will, in your Bible, in Acts 7.57, that as as Stephen was proclaiming to the Sanhedrin, as Stephen was explaining in that entire chapter what is actually the longest recorded sermon in the entire book of Acts. The 50 verses of Acts 7 where he defends and explains what it means to believe in Jesus before the Sanhedrin Derek Prince, a noted British Bible scholar years ago, said something that stuck with me now for 45 years. He said, God is very economical with his use of space in Scripture. And, and Derek was saying that in regard to a very brief verse. It applies also to a huge chapter. The seventh chapter of the book of Acts, 50 verses of a sermon. Even Paul's Messages later in the book of Acts that were the parts that were recorded were not nearly that lengthy. And, and in, the, in the flow, the economical use of space in, in Luke's ma- magnificent manuscript, clearly this is a significant hinge in the story, not only because it moves from the 12 apostles to a common ordinary guy full of the Holy Spirit and faith, but also because the content of what Stephen proclaimed to the Sanhedrin that day was so vital to understanding what it means to be a worshiper today. The centerpiece was that now Christ in his resurrection has taken beyond an earthly temple because God doesn't dwell in earthly temples made with human hands but that Christ in his risen glory has now made it possible for us to be in a living tabernacle, a living dwelling place with worshipers who know our Savior is alive and you can come to God and you can talk to God and the promise of his gift of salvation is to all who hear and the companionship of the Holy Spirit is promised as well. And so in this wonderful, vital truth, the real hinge point, the part where it all begins to come together is the fact that they could not understand. They were refusing to accept it in the very middle of his message. Peter, Stephen explains that the heart of this confrontation is exactly what happened in the days of Moses. The reason his sermon was so long was that it, it covered a great part of the history that all of these All of these Sanhedrin members knew, and yet he showed them in every key point, like in the life of Moses, the urgent confrontation hinge 
on the fact they would not recognize what God was doing now. Moses, he says in verse 25, supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but would you read those last five words aloud with me? But they did not understand. Now Stephen is saying in this long sermon, Stephen is saying, you have a choice, guys, now to learn from their mistake. How would you learn from their mistake? You would realize the living God, the same I am, Yahweh, the ever-present, uncreated, awesome, indescribable, glorious, almighty creator. The one who gave us this very temple that you're holding the Sanhedrin in. This living God through his son Jesus, death, burial, and resurrection through the cross, has now brought us to a new era. And in this new era... Now, the living presence of God is available to the most humble of hearts. Well, that's important, and it's important, I think, that we see in our own Bible, Acts 7.57. Acts 7, Would you find that in your Bible? Acts 7.57, at this they covered their ears. Okay, they, he's just said, you could learn from their mistake. You could learn from those who refused to listen in the past. But what does your Bible say in Acts 7.57? At this, they covered their ears. Whew. And yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at Stephen, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Is that awesome? Yes, in the economical use of space in the entire flow of the 28 chapters of the book of Acts, Luke is now accenting that through an ordinary man full of the Holy Spirit and faith, God, he's about to be murdered. He's about to be the first martyr. And God uses this living witness to wisely bring to the very feet of the future apostle to the Gentiles the evidence that a man who loves Jesus is willing to die for him. He didn't have to, Stephen didn't have to think about whether he was willing to die because the truth was so powerful. He could not do any other but speak the truth. In your Bible, do you see it in verse 59? While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Acts 7.60, then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now, what we have here is a classic example of what Tertullian spoke about in about the year 195 A.D., in the latter part of the second century of the early era after the apostles, one of those early leaders who just immersed himself in the Scripture and in all the history he could find, named Tertullian, sought to described to a Roman official why it is that every time they try to stamp out those who proclaim Jesus as Lord, no matter how many of them they murder, the seed of God's word arises and, and they come alive and 
God brings about a new witness to his glory. Tertullian put it this way, the blood of the martyrs is seed for the church. Astounding truth. And basically what he was saying was, not that anybody should ever desire martyrdom. <laughs> I, I heard one guy many years, when I was a young believer, say, I believe God has shown me I'm going to be a martyr one day. And he was, he, seriously, and he was, serious, he was sincere. I, I, knew, I knew him well. Years later, he passed away in, in a normal way. And I loved him. I knew him later. But I thought to myself years later, I thought, you know, it's not wise to go around proclaiming things in the future that we have no control over. Uh, but I think what he was moved by was that sense that it is true that if you're truly following the Lord Jesus, being a martyr is not a tragedy. Being a martyr is an honor. And I think the application for all of us has to be, though, Back to what Stephen was called to do. They said there's a task that's got to be done. It's urgent that it be done. The 12 wanted to prioritize the ministry of the Word of God in prayer. And Stephen stepped up and said, I'll take on that task. He was on task, on time, on the job, serving God, loving Him, filled with the Holy Spirit in faith. And then when he just began to carry that word to other communities, God blessed him with miracles and signs. For us in our world, what is the real challenge? I believe the real challenge for us is to stay on task in our world. That is for you to no longer, none of us to ever diminish or demean the value of serving in the small local church. That is for none of us to ever demean or diminish the value of, as Jesus put it in Matthew 10, a cup of cold water to a disciple. For us to never diminish the value of the moment today where we step in and say, I love him, so I will serve you. To step in and say what the Apostle Paul said in Galatians 5, 16, when he said, you've been called to liberty my friends, but use not liberty for an occasion to serve yourself, but by love serve one another. It's what wise witnesses do. I want to ask you to join me in thanking God for that. Lord, I pray that in our hearts and our lives that the reality of this dynamic touch that you demonstrate and display so powerfully in Stephen, the first martyr, that we would see that high value and honor of martyrdom was not something he asked for. It came about because he was on task. It came about because he was truly reflecting back to those around him the love of his victorious Redeemer that had so radically touched his heart. Lord, let us walk in radical, bold, faithful discipleship, not, not to draw attention to ourselves, but to be a church and a people who say yes to the mighty, redemptive call of our risen Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.